friends, fans, and colleagues, uh, this is Karen Tate, and uh, if you're here with me, uh, you are listening to Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio, uh, and we have been here on Blog Talk uh, for about 13 years. Uh, if you are one of my old listeners, uh, thank you for your listener loyalty, and if you are one of my new listeners, I just want to say uh, thank you uh, for being the gas in my tank that keeps me going every week. Uh, over time here. Also, just a quick shout out to uh, the, re- the uh, reclaiming folks. Uh, you were listening to Weave and Spin uh, from the Reclaiming uh, Campfire songs. Uh, they're all activist chants uh, that kind of uh, get the energy moving and uh, uh, help us manifest things in the world. So uh, you might want to look that up. There are lots of good, uh, lots of good stuff from them. Uh, reclaiming Campfire chants and that. Was uh, weave and spin. So, uh, you know, I always think I have a great show for you. (laughs) Uh, And that's probably because, uh, you know, I handpick my guests uh, based on what I think is happening out there in the world, based on uh, new information that comes my way. And, um, you know, I am a big proponent of, um, of looking at new information. And I think that started for me, uh, I don't know, back about 30, 35 years. Um, if you're a new listener, you might not know uh, or maybe even believe that uh, I could have grown up in the Bible Belt of New Orleans and I uh, grew up a Catholic. Um, and uh, I can, you know, I sort of refer to myself jokingly these days as a recovering Catholic. Uh, but when I got out of that bubble uh, and I moved to California, my uh, my world expanded, as I'm sure it happens for so many of you when you come in contact uh, with new information. Uh, one of the things that uh, really changed my outlook on everything was, uh, you know, that move west. Um, you know, just opened my mind, first of all, to the idea of the sacred feminine or the divine feminine or goddess, because that was not a concept uh, that uh, I think anyone knew about or wanted you to know about in the the bubble I grew up in, uh, in the Bible Belt. You know, sure, we had Mary, but she was, uh, you know, uh, she certainly wasn't, you know, a goddess. Uh, she was Jesus's mother. We all loved her. We prayed to her. Uh, but the, you know, the organized religion, um, you know, barely recognized her and uh, uh, didn't give her her due. Um, and I think that started to open my mind about what else don't we know? What else don't we know? Um, uh, you know, there's so much spin out there. You know, uh, you can call it what you want. You can call it fake news. Uh, you can take a story and uh, hear one version of reality on Fox, another version of reality on MSNBC. Uh, we still don't know who uh, maybe shot John F. Kennedy. Um, you know, if you read Zachariah Sitchkin, The Twelfth Planet, uh, you know, you're having questions about the origins uh, of humanity and the earth, uh, their false flags about, um, you know, how wars start. And um, when I wrote my book, my first book, Sacred Places of Goddess, um, it quickly became apparent to me uh, about the spin of uh, mythology, of academia. Um, and, uh, you know, I was trying to research uh, sacred sites of goddess in the Polynesian islands, and I quickly found out how Christian ethnographers uh, tainted the real mythology of the indigenous people. You know, they wanted to put their, uh, their Christian spin on it. Um, you know, some of the beliefs, you know, they didn't want published out there in the world. And it really made it difficult to get... Uh, to the the meat of you know what these indigenous people in the Polynesian islands actually believed, and it's the same with um, some of our holy books, and that's why I like this the guest that. Um, I have on the show today. As I said, he's been with us before. Uh, he's Dr. Uh, Amon Hillman. Uh, you know, maybe you uh, know him as David. I do want to just make that connection. Uh, uh, but it's uh, uh, Amon Hillman. And um, uh, I love him because, uh, you know, he doesn't have to rely on Christian translations. Uh, he actually translates his own Greek. And because of that, 
Um, my listeners and myself, we have learned so much from him. Um, and uh, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to uh, sort of crack the door wide on um, some um, some interesting subjects, I'm afraid. And I, I have to tell you, I uh, even uh, coded my show, marked my show differently today. Instead of it being open to uh, anyone listening, uh, I went and labeled it uh, adult content because of uh, some of what you're going to hear today. You know, just as a safeguard, uh, not that I don't think young people should hear the truth, but we're going to be getting into probably some sexual content today. Uh, and most definitely some content that the church uh, would be pretty unhappy with. But, um, you know, I am about unveiling the truth. Uh, I, you know, uh, it makes me think of that old saying, the truth will set you free. Well, I believe it really does, uh, and we're going to try to do a little bit of that today. So um, let me uh, start with... Um, uh, telling you about uh, Dr. Hillman's story, and uh, then we will welcome him to the show. So, um, you know, I first uh, got acquainted with Dr. Hillman. Uh, his story for me started back when he was forced to remove a chapter on recreational drug use in the ancient world from his thesis, not because it was inaccurate, uh, but because uh, he was forced by academia to be politically correct, yes. So you can imagine all the other uh, things that go, you know, that happen like that. You know, um, the out-of-place artifacts, for instance, that uh, never make it into mainstream thought because it maybe disrupts, um, you know, uh, something that you were taught. You know, rather than taking in the new information and evolving with it. Uh, well, Dr. Hillman uh, made lemonade of lemons when, uh, you know, they made him pull that out of his thesis. And he put the information in his first book uh, called The Chemical Muse, uh, Drug Use and Roots of Western Civilization, which actually got uh, turned into a three-hour documentary, I believe, on the History Channel later. So uh, you might want to go look that up, not right now, later, uh, The Chemical Muse, uh, Drug Use and Roots of Western Civilization. And uh, Dr. Hillman, I'm sure, will tell us uh, the name of the documentary on uh, History Channel. Maybe you can get a copy of it. But um, moving forward in his life, you know, after that, um, he was hired at St. Mary's University of Minnesota uh, as a professor of Greek and Latin for Catholic seminarians. Uh, while he was employed there, David uh, had his second book published, and the title of that was Original Sin, Ritual Child Rape in the Early Church. Yep, that's what I said, original sin, ritual child rape in the early church, which, as you can tell by the title, is pretty explosive. Um, and uh, David and I, uh, uh, Ammon and I, uh, talked about these uh, two books um, in previous interviews. So if you go to the archives, uh, you know, we get into those uh, pretty extensively. Just uh, go to the search box there on Blog Talk and uh, put in uh, Dr. Hillman's name and Voices of the Sacred Feminine, and uh, he should come up. Um, as I said, uh, he translates his own Greek, which is verifiable. He has citations for all of this. So if you think if you know this is just about Christian bashing, it's really not. Uh, he's quoting from the holy books. You know, he's done the uh, the translations, and um, and you know we'll get into that as well. Uh, the history and religion, you know, we've all learned is uh, pretty whitewashed and sanitized. Uh, you know, including pedophilia among notable players in history. And you know, it's hard for me to say this, be, but because uh, I'm sure people are going to gasp out there. Uh, but um, you know, like Jesus with the naked boy in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, you know, I, the whitewashed history, uh, you know, all you have to do is think about uh, the story they tell us about Thanksgiving, uh, you know, what a, what a sham that official story is. Well, this is, you know, one of those same things. Um, I know uh, this story we're going to talk to you about today is terribly explosive, but it's provable. Uh, a Boston professor, notable professor, told Dr. Hillman his linguistic analysis of uh, John's apocalypse is better than anything he's seen. Um, you know, at Boston University or Harvard. So, you know, uh, Dr. Hillman knows his stuff. 
So while he's working at this college, St. Mary's University, uh, the priests who run the institution, they're curious and they, you know, tap his knowledge of, uh, you know, ancient rites and pagan Greece, uh, including sexual rites. Uh, he starts and runs an interdepartmental uh, colloquium uh, that becomes popular. He draws students, priests, professors uh, to community roundtables, um, you know, uh, because people haven't heard this stuff, right? I mean, uh, it, it's like they're gobsmacked. Uh, he's also assigned the task of translating and consulting on a production of Seneca's Medea uh, for the university. So Medea, you know, most of us know her as uh, the crazy woman in ancient times who killed her kids. Well, that's a distortion, too, about Medea. And um, I'm not sure if we'll have time to get into that today, but, uh, you know, Medea is the mother of, of modern pharmacology. Uh, there's a whole new story on Medea, just like last week's show. Uh, that I did, um, you know, gives us a whole new look at Joan of Arc in Boudicca. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know, I think it's, it's important to, uh, you know, really look at the whole person and what they really did contribute to the world. So Dr. Hillman, you know, he translated uh, the play, Medea, from Latin, and the actors uh, used phallus props in a scene, which got him fired despite having approval for the play before it was performed. Um, he filed a lawsuit. He was represented pro bono because of his freedom of speech had been violated, and he was wrongfully terminated. Uh, and the American Association of University Professors investigated and ruled that Dr. Hillman's termination uh, at St. Mary's University of Minnesota was inappropriate. Okay, so, you know, David's, David is kind of getting the shaft here for doing his job and uh, telling the truth. So uh, now it's uh, during the three-year-long lawsuit uh, that things really got interesting. Uh, the church tried to smear David, uh, you know, to beat this freedom of speech and wrongful termination lawsuit. Um, and uh, one can actually read in the deposition, they asked him questions like if he believes he can open portals to the underworld, uh, if his ethereal body can float through walls, if he can assault young women uh, while in his non non-corporeal state. Um, they have him undergo a seven-hour interrogation to see if he's possessed by the devil. Okay, so, you know, you, you can see how they're trying to color the narrative rather than face that uh, he was wrongfully terminated and they violated his freedom of speech. Now, of course, uh, you know, the, the powers that be, the church is a big entity. Uh, his, uh, um, Dr. Hillman's attorney can't subpoena clergy emails to prove collusion uh, by the players on the opposing side to fabricate uh, these allegations against him. You know, he's up against the full force of the Catholic Church. And, um, uh, you know, Dr. Hillman said, uh, you know, the church's attorney even threatened him, uh, which caused him to have to pick up and move to another state uh, during the course of the lawsuit so he didn't lose his children. Um, he's had, uh, you know, and he's had exclusive custody of his kids uh, since birth. Um, and, it, you know, just kind of an interesting little tidbit, uh, you know, where David tips his toe. Uh, he also uh, worked on an archaeological dig at uh, Tel uh, uh, Megiddo in Israel, which uh, is supposed to be the site of Armageddon. Uh, and, uh, you know, I guess uh, Dr. Hillman kind of feels like uh, his life uh, in the last few years trying to bring truth to the world, uh, you know, kind of has been, uh, uh, you know, uh, Armageddon in a sense or uh, certainly has been the the end of his uh, a career in academia. So I know that that was a long intro, uh, more than I usually give, but uh, uh, I really wanted you to see the history here of how from the very beginning of Dr. Hillman's career, he just tried to bring us truth, uh, and he paid the price because the status quo just they can't handle the truth and they can't handle us knowing the truth. Uh, so, so uh, Dr. Hillman, uh, Amon, uh, welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine once again. Karen, thank you very much for that uh, beautiful introduction. I really appreciate you, you putting all of that information out there so nicely. 
Well, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I'm sort of in, uh, you know, up in arms myself about the price you paid for uh, just telling the truth, and uh, I don't think that's the kind of world we want to live in. Uh, you know, we want to live in a world where there's transparency, and uh, you know, we're not all living a lie. And I, and I guess right now, what's going on in the political arena, you know, what passes for truth these days, uh, I think this subject is even more important and uh, kind of a pet peeve of, of, uh, of mine. And, you know, I want to do what little I can to uh, bring truth and awareness to the public, uh, you know, as opposed to, you know, being one of the sheeple that uh, just, you know, carries water for the people who don't want us to know the truth. So, um, you know, let's, uh, let's start at the beginning, um, uh, Ammon. Uh, you know, what is the mystery? Uh, you know, what is the garden? Uh, because I think we um, are, are misinformed. So I wanted to kind of bring us all to a, this one place, the garden, so that we could understand uh, how these texts really can be explored. Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the Bible. And I just want to take us to see how important translation uh, is in our understanding of the past. Because we're trying to reach into the past, we're trying to reach into history, and we're trying to look at a group of people and figure out what they're doing and saying. And that's very important with the Bible. And what I wanted to do was just start in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, somewhere we're all familiar with, where... Jesus was arrested and I think you know this originally started for me as a graduate student and struck me and so I'd like to bring kind of that uh, horrific ecstasy back to you by capturing that moment so I came across this passage in the Gospel of Mark we'll go to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14 verses 51 and 52 and I want to read you four different translations in English just to let you see how the text can be manipulated or played with. So the first one is the English Standard. And a young man followed him, that is Jesus, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So, most people don't look at this boy that was with Jesus in the garden. So this is pre-dawn, 3 to 4 o'clock a.m., in a public park called Gethsemane, associated with a cemetery, where Jesus was arrested with a naked boy who ran away naked, uh, wasn't apprehended, and all we know about this boy, according to this translation, that he had some sort of linen cloth. So I want to read you another one. One young man following behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt. When the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. So you can see the translator has slightly changed the focus to be on why... The naked child was there in clothing that came off quickly. And the third translation. One youth indeed did follow him, wearing only a linen cloth round his rare bare body. Of him they laid hold, but he left the linen cloth in their hands and fled without it. So this linen cloth gets thrown around. And what's interesting is, if you just take a step out of those translations for a second is that linen cloth is a it, on the medical side of antiquity and authors like Galen uh, who was a physician around the time of Marcus Aurelius in his writings particularly in ones like the antidotes and I'm sorry Karen but most of these uh, a lot of these sources that I'll be giving you are accessible online but they are still in the original Greek so uh you can get get these sources if you want, and I'll name them. But in order to do so, you can you may have to delve into some Greek. I'm sorry about that. So the linen cloth is a cloth that's used on the medical side as an impregnated wrap 
that applies medicine to a wound, whether that wound is intentional or not. So this rag on the religious side is used in religious rites to apply venoms, for example, in the performance of ancient rites known as the mystery. Okay. So, so David, uh, just you know, just playing devil's advocate here, you know, because uh, uh, how do we know that the linen cloth uh, was this uh, medical application, you know, with um, with venom on it, uh, as opposed to just a simple um, linen, you know, a, a, a piece of you know, just a, a piece of clothing. Um, you know, how, right. how do we know for sure? Right. Excellent question. And I, the text gives it away because it says he takes this cloth and he wraps it around his privates. So he's using the cloth on his privates in the context of a cemetery meeting with a an individual who has taken the title of Christos, the one who, to whom has been applied the very communion itself of the mystery. So we have all of these associated titles, but the text answers your question, Karen, itself by saying he actually wraps up his genitals. So this is not a piece of clothing, and it's not a sheet. A lot of the texts call it a sheet. This is a specific wrap that we can see in parallel religious text is used within the context of a sexual rite that uses the same titles that Jesus himself is, is using and the apostles are using. So those are the facts. You, have, you come to the conclusions yourself, but those are the facts about this scene. Uh, and I think... Oh. Go ahead. Uh, so let me just ask you this. Okay, what you read us um, didn't talk about uh, the cloth being wrapped around his genitals. Is that somewhere else in the text? Because, I mean, you've established Jesus was with a naked boy or a semi-naked boy in the garden in the middle of the night. Uh, but where does it actually say that, um, you know, the cloth was wrapped around his genitals? It says that in the very sentence itself in Greek. It says in Greek, And that epigumno is the upon his private. And that doesn't get translated into the text. It, some, some translators get close, but they're never that specific. Okay. Okay. All right. So, um, all right. So obviously, all right. So let's let's assume that's that's true. So um, so apparently then, I mean, look, it's just like in in today we have jargon for things that um, people in ancient times wouldn't understand, people in the future would not understand. It makes sense to us now because it's it's popular slang. Um, so this this cloth with this um, uh, venom on it, this snake venom, um, you're alluding to the fact that this was this was something that was used in sex rites in ancient times, and Jesus was in the process of doing that with this young boy. So what what why were people using um, snake venom um, in sex rites? Uh, what you know? What was the purpose, and uh, was it just? And, and how did it work? I mean, was it was it absorbed uh, uh, through the genitals? That's why the kid had it wrapped around his genitals. No, it's not a matter of absorption within the rite itself. Let me, Karen, in order to kind of bring this all into view, let me give you another example. So we have the scene done, the wrap. Now, let me give you another example in the Bible of another instrument, and that is an instrument called an alabastron. So in Mark 14:3, we read, While he was in Bethany, that is Jesus, reclining at the table, 
in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. So that alabastron is, just like the sindon, a medical device that is also used in religious, religious ritual. Because in, antiquity, excuse me, because in antiquity, you really can't separate the practice of medicine and religious rite. They're really, the healing temples are temples. Okay, and in this alabastron, I mean, I think I've seen pictures of them. They're phallus shaped, right? So they put they put medicine over the top of the phallus that's penis shaped, and it's inserted, and that's how the medicine is applied. Am I, Correct. Am I right? Correct. And you'll notice in this passage right. that I quoted that they that they say that the alabaster jar. Uh, uh, was a container. They imply it was a container, which indeed they could contain the the uh, drug itself. But it's also a medical applicator that Aristophanes himself mocks in his famous play, The Lysistrata. And uh, the uh, fact that Mary is applying it to him is a direct connection to the ancient practice of a religious act, which was sexual. And we know this for a fact because authors like Nonus, most of your audience hasn't heard about Nonus, who is a 4th or 5th century Christian author who writes about Mary and why that she angered people, uh, like Pope Gregory, for example, uh, later in the 6th was upset and says Mary's use of sex drugs in the process of anointing Jesus was inappropriate. But Nonus, wait, wait, in his text... Wait, 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 wait. Say, what? Say, wait, say that again. It kind of it kind of got lost. Um, you slurred over it. What did Gregory say about Mary? So Pope Gregory the Great, we're talking 6th century, he condemned Mary's use of sex drugs in the process of anointing Jesus. Okay. All right, so David, what you're telling us, I mean, let's just be plain here. You know, we have this picture, I mean, we've all seen it on Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, Mary Magdalene comes in, you know, she's got a jar of ointment, and we're imagining that she is taking the ointment out of the jar uh, with her hand, and she's applying it to, I don't know, his temples or wherever. And you're saying, no, that's just the way the, uh, they decided to translate it. They've sanitized it. And uh, she's using this phallus-shaped alabastron, and she has to be, in, it, okay, it, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, she has to be inserting it? Yes. Uh-huh, anally inserting it. And just so it's not my words, let me just let the ancient author tell you himself. This is in Nonus in his paraphrase of John. So he's quoting John, or he's discussing John, where in John Mary is applying the alabastron. And this is what he says. This is from 4th century uh, A.D. Lying there outstretched with him, she wiped away his thick semen, with her sexy, luxurious hair. The smell of the drug made everyone present ecstatically high. That's Nona's paraphrase of John 12. Okay, well, um, <laughs> I think you're, you're already blowing people's minds here, David. I mean, this, uh, so, all right, so, so where do you want to go next with this? Okay, we're we're already kind of you know uh, amazed at uh, uh, you know what you what you've revealed. Um, you know why were people why were people doing this with the snake venom? If this was snake venom, right? That was causing this uh, orgiastic kind of. Um, uh, David, there's something in there's something uh, there's some noise in the background. I don't know if you can hear it. Uh, maybe it's your mic, uh, but I just wanted to let you know I'm getting some um, I'm getting some feedback or something. So um, so anyhow, so so this uh, this um, 
sex drug that Gregory refers to, was this the 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 snake venom that was on the the linen that the boy in the Garden of Gethsemane had on uh, the the linen cloth? The snake venom was Karen was one of the drugs that was used that was applied within the rite itself. That's why we went to the garden and talked about the mystery. Because the mystery is the performance. You've heard Christianity described as a mystery, and it, is, it describes itself within, within its own text as a mystery or a mystery performance. And that performance in antiquity involves the use of snake venom. And in the text that I've seen, the snake venom is typically the North African viper, and I consulted with a toxinologist in Australia who is trying to help me open up what that formula was actually doing chemically. But, Karen, they created a process somewhere in the late Bronze Age. We're talking 1100 uh, B.C. to 1000 B.C., somewhere in that range, very late Bronze Age. They created an ability to make antibodies to venoms that they had selectively gathered and were basically testing the, the texture, kind of gruesome, uh, that preserved this act, and they preserve it as a, uh, almost a testing. It's very similar. To, you take a criminal and you apply a, 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 a lethal drug to this criminal, and then you apply substances that you would hope would counteract those those negative symptoms. Uh, uh, it's akin to what they were doing in Alexandria, Egypt, when they were uh, opening up criminals who had been condemned to death and observing the organs as they were in their natural state. Okay, but so this you're saying... Mystery, you're saying so, but wait. Just so you're saying they use the snake venom in these mysteries, and you're making me think of the hieragamas, you know, the uh, the the chalice and the blade, the penis and the vagina, you know, that the act. Um, they're they're using snake venom, but because that's poisonous, they need to they need an antidote. Right. Right, exactly. You remember, Karen, that uh, Paul the Apostle is himself immune. He actually gets bit by a, by a viper, and people are surprised. Uh, in the book of Acts, you'll see people are surprised by the fact that he was uh, totally immune. And Jesus himself said uh, to his disciples, you'll be able to drink. It's a very strange passage, but he says, you'll be able to drink the venom and not be harmed. Uh, uh but, yes, the, the use of venom in the early mysteries is widespread, and it harkens back to the late Bronze Age when the first founder of the ancient sect called the Magi uh, surfaces in history. Her name is the name, is the very uh, root that we get for our word medicine, and that is Medea. And she developed, to make a long story short, Karen, she developed a cult that was centered around a mystery and spread this mystery across the Mediterranean so that the inhabitants of Italy set up a temple to her, for example, that was a, akin to what you and I would call a hospital. Uh, they were having problems with their snakes and people getting bitten, and she set up a place where they could uh, remedy the situation. So her fame, her fame was widespread, which in antiquity is difficult to do. I mean, to to be incredibly famous in your own lifetime is due to the, uh, how slowly information travels is, is difficult. All right, and this is good to see. Probably most people know about her the beginning and end, and she goes. Uh, she goes to her agent, tells her parents, uh, her, uh, 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 uh
Karen, Karen, the uh, audio is broken up completely. Could you rephrase that? Uh, yes, sorry. Uh, so we believe that the Jesus will know about the, uh, uh, it's probably the beginning and end of it for most people, and she was hiding all these things and things something. But really, the Jesus is this bullshit, and the fact that she, her and people that she trained, were spreading throughout the ancient world this snake um, for OGS, exceptional rights, for ecstatic rights, uh, but then they, they the antidote or uh, taking part in this sexual right uh, could have killed them, which it goes back to Jesus. You know, I got almost all of that, so I'm going to get out. I'm going to spit out an answer, but I hope uh, uh, I, I can get that through because the line is breaking up. Um, here's here's exactly as you said what happened. You can see, you can trace through the literature the influence of Medea's work, and that is picked up over time and used by her own. Uh, you can't call them disciples. It's more of a sect. Ultimately, it's a group of educated uh, pharmacologists who spread their knowledge of astronomy uh, and mathematics to uh, ancient civilization. So they're consulted a lot. The Magi are consulted a lot by uh, kings and potentates. And, of course, the Magi end up coming to the site of Jesus' birth and announcing that they've been following his star and what we the things that you don't see uh, in between the lines Karen are the context that has to do with the ancient mystery religion uh, of the STR it was what scholars uh, anyway it's what uh, uh, I would call it the STR cult it's the Asterian or the the star cult Advanced by the Magi. And in this, you see this mostly, Karen, in the what are called the Greek magical papyri, where we see magic actually practiced in antiquity. And of course, that's where we get our, our concept of the magician or, the, or what magic is. But these texts were what the apostles promoted burning because they were considered dangerous. And we see that in the New Testament, of course, uh, take out your magic books and burn them. Some of them survived. And in those texts, we get a picture of the practice of the mystery. And it gives us lots of clues about simple things like why did Jesus call himself the morning star? And why is that central to the practice of uh, the ancient mystery uh, that the Magi actually guarded, preserved. If I heard you correctly, yes, uh, and you you can bring this out by just examining the very the very things that they are doing. If you look at the text themselves, just pull out uh, the actual evidence, and it, you can reconstruct what's going on in a passage just from the just from the context. It's just it's good detective work ultimately, but but it, it has to be based in. The use of evidence. Let me let me give you an example, for the sake of the mystery. So we're talking about sexual acts, and we're talking about medicines, and we're talking about the performance of rituals that are meant for initiation or what we call baptism, uh, 
or uh, rebirth. And you're looking at those rituals, and you come across uh, other sources contemporary with the Gospels. For example, the sources that weren't accepted as canonical. And you get these strange references. For example, we have a reference to Mark's, the Apostle Mark, who's writing his own, uh, excuse me, the author Mark, who's writing his own gospel, is uh, referred to by Clement of Alexandria as having written a few extra sections uh, that were deleted because the, it was considered that the audience was not ready to hear these things, and it was only meant for the truly initiated. And to make a long story short, um, I'll go ahead and quote it for you. It says, so we're quoting Clement of Alexandria, second century Christian, who's saying, look, this is what Mark said that didn't make it into the final cut. He said, and they came into Bethany, and a certain woman whose brother had died was there. And coming, she prostrated herself before Jesus and said to him, Son of David, have mercy on me. But the disciples rebuked her. And Jesus, being angered, went off with her into the garden where the tomb was. And straightway a great cry was heard from the tomb. And going near, Jesus rolled away the stone from the door of the tomb. And straightway, going in where the youth was, he stretched out his hand and raised him, seizing his hand. But the youth, looking upon him, loved him and began to beseech him that he might be with him. And going out of the tomb, they came into the house of the youth, for he was rich. And after six days, Jesus told him what to do. And in the evening, the youth came to him wearing a linen cloth. That linen cloth is a sindone. Over his naked body. And he remained with him that night, for Jesus taught him the mystery of the kingdom of God. Well, <laughs> so the mystery he was being taught um, wasn't, um, you know, he, he, they weren't praying. Um, what you're alluding to is that he was teaching in sexual rights. Because clearly, sexual rights, uh, we get the idea and with. Yes, Karen, it, it is indeed a sexual right, uh, and it's, you know, if you look at the evidence from what we have from the text, and you can look through the medical side, and you can look through the religious side, uh, and you can look at these parallel examples of what's going on, you can build a picture, and it is a sexual picture, but to focus on that is not is to fail to see the bigger image of what's going on. So, yes, in fact... It implies that Jesus was performing a sexual act on that child that was naked with him at 4 a.m. in the garden. It appears that way. Any opinion you, you can draw from that is just, it would have to be just opinion. But the evidence points to the act was what was going on between, between the two. So. Okay, I didn't get that. It was washed out. But uh, the bigger picture, I heard you ask for a bigger picture. So the reason that we needed to come here and see this, the, big, the bigger picture is we have to look at this, these texts within their own context. So, for, for example, when Jesus says... Uh, he rebukes his own people. He yells at his own people, and he says, stop forbidding uh, parents from bringing me their children because I need to touch them. When he talks about touching them, the verb that's in Greek there is hopto, which is uh, sexual molestation. It's a term for sexual molestation. Now, was that touching a part of the rite and of the mystery? Well, it was as the rite was turning in the first century because the Baptists had come along and the Baptists are a sect that takes groups of young boys 
out into Es Eremon, they call it, out into the quote-unquote wilderness. And they carry with them phallus-shaped cups in order to perform according to what our Roman rites, uh, our Roman sources, talk about is a sexually explicit uh, initiation where the baptism that follows has to do with a cleansing of the renewed youth. So in in the so if you look at the language that John is using and you look at the uh, language that Jesus is using and you look at contemporary use of the rites within actual magical papyri, you can rebuild the actual performance that was taking place. And it's clear that Jesus and John primarily turned the rite from a sexual relationship between a male and a female adult to a relationship between a, an adult male and a pubescent boy. And this bothered me for a while until I found in the medical text references to the use of prepubescent boy excretions, for lack of a better word. These, the ejaculate that is given off in a boy who is entering puberty can be used, according to the medical text, look at Galen's antidotes, where uh, uh, you can counteract a poison or a venom with uh, the boy's semen. And it's interesting that the very venom that you can counteract is what one source claims, again it's known as, claims is the cup that was given, the ingredient in the cup that was given to Jesus on the cross because it's an antidote to dipsass poisoning. And dipsass is a snake that the very word in Greek, dipsas, means to thirst. So remember, Karen, that Jesus is on the cross and that he's crying out, I'm thirsty, and they give him something to drink and he refuses it. Notice tells us that the antidote to the dipsass was in that cup which in a medical context would make a lot of sense because Jesus doesn't die from crucifixion. Most people think he's crucified and he dies from crucifixion. He doesn't. He dies early and they even note it. The Roman guard there says, wait a minute, he's dead. So um, there may have been some chemical play. It's hard to come to a conclusion and say, yeah, he had that on board. That's why he had that cloth and an antidote ready. So he was using the boy as an antidote to the very cup of the mystery, which he claims in the garden himself. He uses the language himself that he's uh, suffering to take that cup, that cup of God, for the kingdom of, for the what we call the kingdom of heaven, which is again another expression in the language of the Magi. <laughs> Karen, your mic, your mic is. Uh, should we try to reestablish a connection? You know, it's not coming through at all on this end. Or would you like me just to keep talking? Well, I can. I can. All right. Yeah, it sounds like the satellite is washing out or something. Let me just continue, and you can tell me uh, if you think we should go on or kind of re redirect. But there was another uh, very important point that I wanted to bring out, and that is that you have this whole behind the ancient mystery rites. You have a cast of characters that's involved with protecting their rights over time. And they called these this group the dragons. And it harkens back to the very first oracular cults that ended up in Greece. And you'll read this in the tragedians, and you'll read this about the dragons and what they did. And it comes down to this, Karen. They developed a language, 
I, the Magi developed a language that they called the tongue of the dragon that they would use in order to conceal the mystery from anyone who was not initiated. And you'll recognize this right away because if you've read the Bible, because anytime you hear the magic phrase, those who have ears to hear, let them hear, that's a magical imprecation, we call it. And it tells you that what's following is going to be part, or at least uh, contain, references to the mystery. And so if you have ears to hear it, you can, if you've been initiated, you can hear it. And so I, a German philologist named Otto Kern in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, roughly, was uh, researching a group of Greek texts called the Orphic Fragments. And he noted in his research that the fragments contained an encoded language that he would refer to as Orphic. He called it the Vox Orphica, or the Orphic Voice. And what that Orphic Voice is, is a language that piggybacks upon its Greek host and communicates a message upon the back of its Greek host. And you see this enter the book of Revelation, for example, and the implication is given to, uh, for those with ears to hear, you're about to hear something. And so what I'm saying, Karen, is if you apply the science of what was going on with the pharmacology and what, was, what they were doing contextually within these rites, you see patterns that begin to emerge. And this language, the language of the dragon, reveals that pattern. It's like a key that you can use to open up these texts. And somebody fabricated this very uh, uh, mystery language creation in the Renaissance. And it happened to be the court poet, interestingly enough, the court poet of... Uh, mercenary, he was a mercenary, the core poet of Vlad Dracula. And he composed his own series, interesting, series of poems in perfectly classical Latin ref that contain this very Orphic code within them. So I know that, you know, when you're looking at the language that's underneath the surface here, I know that at least one other group within history at some point was able to recognize the code, at least break it, and then replicate it in their own poetry. But it's very clever, Karen. It's a way to hide the actual performance of the mystery uh, from eyes that are profane. Okay. Um, can, you hear me, Dave? Uh, can you hear me, Dr. Hillman? Yep, now I can hear you. You came back. Okay. All right. Well, let's 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 hope. Uh, well, you sounded fine. We could just so you know, we could hear you fine. And uh, even though you're getting bits and pieces of me, I think you're getting enough to um, understand my questions. So, um, so so where do where do we go um, where do we go from here with this, um, Amon? I mean, uh, you know, you've. You know, it, uh, do people today? I mean, uh, are they, or are there groups out there? Do you have any idea? That, you know, um, you know, can contemporary groups have they broke this code? Um, I mean, are you, are they using the snake venom and, and the antidote uh, in their in their magical or sexual rites, or, or have we lost it? Yeah, honestly, uh, from what I've seen from the ancient sources. It's so complex, Karen, uh, I don't think anybody could reproduce this without, without incredible resources, and they would need 20 years to set it up. Because in order to make the right work, you have to have a host who's been exposed to the venom who can produce you the antidote. And it has to be produced, Karen, in the breast of a lactating uh, prepubescent girl. 
and you say, how do they lactate? You can't lactate if you're prepubescent, right? Well, they're giving them a, a, a chronic dosage of the viperventum, which viperventum uh, acts as a prolactin uh, activator. So it'll activate the uh, prolactin receptors and indu- uh, uh, induce the, the nursing response. So they refer to this milk that they would take from the young priestess as the virgin's milk or the maiden's milk. And ultimately that concept came out to promote Athena, and it's, it's the idea behind Athena uh, as the young virgin and her place. Uh, uh, and I'm not the one saying that. Um, the sources say that. Uh, the, pro- the priests and the physicians say that. So uh, that's their history. Wow, and in all of this, uh, in all of this pharmacology, uh, we're talking about being able to make the, the 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 young maidens lactate. We're talking about the snake venom. Uh, you know, we're talking about the you know uh, the antidotes for the snake venom. All of this comes from Medea. She is the source that figured this all out. Yeah, and this is what's this is what's really neat is. Somehow she figured out how to use the female body as a dispensary, as a means of creating a drug of communion. Uh, and uh, this, ex- her experimentation with the venoms is what guided and directed this push. And we know that just from the acquisition of the materials. You can talk about where do you get viper venom in the market in Rome, you know, where, you know, well, they, they sell it in the market. So, uh, at least later. But it, so, let me get back on track. So, you can trace the fact that her right was using her own body to produce a substance. She was the one who was Christos. The first, uh, let me, let me kind of reshape things. With context, the, Lucifer's a, a female, right? There's a Lucifera before there's ever a Lucifer, right? So this female figure who is producing with her own body the communion substance, that's older than the male product. So when we look at the mystery, we're looking back to the engineering of the female body in order to create, and this is the way they looked at it, a voice. Not just a voice, but the voice, the perfection. They call her, the Magi call her Kuria Nukta, uh, Queen Knight or Lord Knight. And they talked about her oracular power coming through that physical person, that historical person, Medea, who was the queen of the Medes, that historical person that somehow she developed this right, and that's what the Magi followed. And that right was perverted, Karen, in order to follow the pharmacology. They still needed the antidotes. Well, apparently you can get the same antidote for this venom from a prepubescent boy's ejaculate that you can from the breast uh, excretions of a priestess. Wow. Wow. David, um, this is incredible stuff. It's complex, um, and uh, I hate to tell you, but we're out of time. Um, so uh, let me let me give you a minute here. Um, do you want to sort of wrap this up? You know, put the bow on it to kind of, um, you know, is is there any more you want to say to you know bring this all into context? We need to find out who that boy was we need to find out why he was there and we need to find out how in order you know the only reason to study history uh, is to understand how it progresses and to understand how it works how the whole puzzle fits together and for us we need to look at this figure uh, Jesus and we need to say what is going on with all of the evidence in order for us to be able to step across the line and to say, okay, we've understood, we've inquired, this is the past and this is our present. 
And we won't move forward until we understand what that past was, Karen. And who am I? I just happen to be a guy who found a way to translate, who got lucky and found a way to translate a language that exposes evidence from antiquity that the conclusions can't be ignored. We have to find out who that boy was, how, what he was doing there with Jesus, and why the early church fathers went to such extremes to replicate those rites and were arrested over time by Roman authorities for sexually abusing children. Well, well you know, the sexual abuse of children hasn't stopped, but I doubt that they are trying to recreate the ancient rites, right? I mean, it's just simple pedophilia today, I would imagine. Well, it's always simple pedophilia, right? Whether you justify it by saying you're creating a communion between God and man or you're just sexually ravaging a victim, it's, it's, what's the difference? Right, right, absolutely. Um, well, Ammon, I am, uh, I, I'm sorry we're out of time. This is fascinating. And um, uh, we'll have to talk after the show and see um, if we've missed enough uh, to do a part two or not. But uh, for now, I'm going to have to thank you for this um, enlightening conversation and for all the slings and arrows uh, that you have suffered uh, to try to bring truth uh, to the masses. Um, I think it's horrendous. Uh, what you've gone through, uh, you know, just uh, speaking the truth. And, uh, I mean, th- that has to stop in this world, you know. Um, you know, we need transparency all around. Uh, you know, we can't keep being afraid of the truth. Um, so, um, so Dr. Hillman, thank you. Thank you for your work. Uh, I just want to uh, mention uh, the titles of your books again. Uh, the first one was The Chemical Muse, Drug Use, uh, and the Roots of Western Civilization. Uh, and the second was Original Sin, Ritual Child Rape in the Early Church. Uh, Dr. Hillman, thank you so much for being on Voices of the Sacred Feminine today. Karen, thank you very much for having me. I truly, truly accept the honor, and I want to thank you for giving me a platform to be able to get this information out there. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, David, and we will uh, we'll talk soon, no doubt. Thank you, Dr. Hillman. Bye-bye. Um, well, uh, quite, quite an interesting conversation here with Dr. Hillman, uh, a complex subject, and uh, I apologize if there was any kind of uh, audio difficulty. Uh, it seemed fine to me. Uh, perhaps it was just Dr. Hillman's uh, connection that, uh, um, you know, he had some difficulty, but I think he did a fine job. Uh, but as he said, this is a complex subject, a very complex subject, and uh, you know, it gets into magic, ritual, uh, uh, you know, pharmacology, uh, sex rights. I mean, this is a complicated subject. We could probably take a semester uh, of study uh, to uh, to try to grasp it all. And uh, I and I think uh, you know, maybe all of the answers aren't there. And uh, it, it seems what seems to complicate the uh, the subject isn't just the Greek, uh, the ancient Greek, but it's also the slang of the time um, that uh, that means certain things, that hides certain things, uh, you know, that has to be uh, looked at much more closely. Uh, well, before I go, um, uh, here's a clip uh, from the trailer for Joe Corson's film, uh, Dancing with Gaia. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree. And I came out of it. This is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Uh, Dancing with Gaia is available only at DancingWithGaia.com. 
Okay, that about does it uh, for me today, dear listeners. I will be back with you uh, next Wednesday. And uh, just to repeat uh, Dr. Hillman's um, uh, titles, uh, Original Sin, Ritual Child Rape in the Early Church. Um, If I recall, I read part of that. I think some of what he spoke about today may be in there. Uh, In his first book, uh, The Chemical Muse, uh, Drug Use and the Roots of Western Civilization, it was put out by Macmillan in 2008 Uh, and go to the History Channel too because uh, uh, drug use in the ancient world um, or or a title uh, close to that was the three hour documentary on uh, on just that Um, uh, you know how drugs were used in the ancient world and it's obvious from uh, the people who were uh, vetting uh, Dr. Hillman's thesis, uh, you know, academia seems to uh, have more of an interest in being, uh, you know, politically correct uh, than in um, actually letting uncomfortable information out. And, uh, you know, that is unfortunate. Uh, okay. Uh, thank you for tuning in today. I hope you have enjoyed the show. Uh, if you have any comments or have any questions uh, for Dr. Hillman, uh, you can email me at karentate108 at yahoo.com, and uh, I will be happy to uh, forward your comments. Um, and if we do a second show, uh, you will certainly know, uh, especially if you click the follow button on my show page, because that will enable you to get a reminder um, every week of uh, the show that is going to be airing on uh, usually Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific. Uh, you don't have to remember anything. It will be right there in your email inbox for you to click on and um, uh, you won't miss a thing. Uh, thank you, dear listeners, and uh, until next week, I uh, hope you have a great week. Bye-bye.